Now I'm going to go into some practical community things. So we've talked about community with God and what that should look like. We've talked about how once we get community with God, our identity is then found in him. And so we have our identity as biblical women to go and have community. And then this morning we talked about having that biblical womanhood identity practiced out among other biblical women. So now we're going to talk about community within our homes as our home as a tool of community and then community within our relationships within our home. But I'm going to start with the community as our home as a tool. Community is where we live out the one another's. It's where we practice the things that we're told to do. We aren't called to live isolated lives or lives that don't accept others. So Christ chose to come to this earth and live among us. Sorry, this feels really tall. Um, not as a silent observer, but as a participant. So he was an active member of his society, an active member of his communities. He had family, parents, siblings, a job where he likely interacted with other people that he was working with. He had close friends, disciples, followers. He shared meals with these people, broke bread. He went into their homes, rested, told stories, cried, laughed. Jesus drew near and existed in our very real world and lives. And again, not simply to look at us like a science experiment or an observation, but because he loves us and wants to dwell among us. He wanted to be near to us again, so he sent his son. So, and we don't just need to be community, we don't need to just provide it for others, but we also need it ourselves. We need people who can be there when our lives are falling apart or when someone gets sick or something like that. So we're going to look at what hospitality does and what that looks like. Um, and I think I've heard, I've already heard it from a few of, this, of you this weekend, why hospitality is so hard, because we have a ton of excuses, and some of them are legitimate. We come up with these reasons why we think we can't do hospitality. So it's I don't have the time, my house isn't ever clean enough, or I don't look like I have a house from like, you know, HGTV, whatever, or you know, whatever it is, or I'm not a great cook, I don't have a lot of friends, or maybe even not all of my friends get along. So we have these reasons why we think hospitality just isn't what we're supposed to do. Romans 12, 13 says to practice hospitality. That verse also can be translated to say, seek to show hospitality, which means as believers, we should be looking for opportunities to provide hospitality, to seek it out and find ways to do it. Um, my husband and I love having people over to our house to eat, to share meals or hang out or whatever they might need. So since before we were dating, we started doing weekly spaghetti dinners. So I would go over to his house and we would cook a giant pot of spaghetti and I would make a giant pot of sauce and heat up some garlic bread, and then we would start texting everybody that we knew. There's absolutely no filter for this list. So if you had ever met one of us, you'd probably get a text from us. It would be like, spaghetti dinner at 7 o'clock, just show up, don't bring anything. And we would text everyone that we had met at church that week, anyone we could think of who lived regionally or locally, different places, we would just invite them all. And Weekly dinner, it was on Tuesday nights, and it lasted for a few years, and slowly it morphed into this really huge group of people who would show up and eat a ton of spaghetti, <laughs> but they would also sit and talk, and they'd make friends. We had people who met each other and started dating out of those times, and um, we would meet someone on Sunday that we never met before, and it was a really easy invitation because we couldn't invite them to like our really intimate closed group. It felt too weird to be like, hey, we just met you. Would you like to come to our house for a very strange meeting together? Like, <clears throat> they were freaked out by that. But we could easily say, hey, do you want to come over for spaghetti dinner? Because we knew it was 
easy. It was an easy invitation for them, so they would be invited. And then um, after we got married, we continued this for a while, and it changed over the years. And then I had our son, so we slowed down for a little while after my son was born. Now, um, this summer we did another one where we do them every couple of months, and we just call them summer family suppers. And we just, I cook a ton of food, it changes for what it is, and we do the same thing. We invite everyone we can possibly think of. And it's easy because we don't have to do the, oh, we should we invite so-and-so? Well, they don't hang out with so-and-so, so that's going to be a little awkward. Like, we just have a rule. Everyone's invited, and if they don't want to come and deal with the awkwardness, they don't have to come. Um, now we have a weekly dinner at our house on Tuesdays, and some of the guys who come have dubbed it Misfits Dinners. This is what they've called it themselves. I'm not calling them that. But um, it's just a few guys who my husband has known, and we continue to invite guys to it. But we'll talk about theology or relationship problems or questions about their lives. Um, some of the girls have been coming too, and it's just kind of like, we don't know what we're doing with our lives, so we're going to come sit at your table and talk. And we do that. And they come, and I make a ton of food, and then they stay for as long as they want to. And we try to keep our door open, so we have times when people come to our house at 9 o'clock at night because their marriage is a mess. <laughs> and they will pull into our house and say, my marriage is blowing up. Can I sit and just talk to you about this for a few minutes? Sure, come on in. Or, um, we've had, I've had girls come who will just show up and they need to talk about some trauma and what started as like a coffee will morph into hours where they're just sitting on my couch and I'm like, whatever you need, whatever space you need. I mentor a few girls in my church and they come over during the, during the day while I'm, like I told you earlier, while I'm folding clothes or cooking or making a garlands or whatever and I teach them how to make this stuff. But then that's time together because they're asking me about their lives. Some things are very basic, like, hey, I don't know what to do about this career move um, or this guy and things like that. So my husband and I view our home and our fridge and our bank account really as a tool for community. So my daughter is so used to it at this point that she every night asks, how many plates, Who's, how many are coming tonight? And it's different every night usually. And sometimes it's not, sometimes like it's just us and she'll be like, <laughs> but usually there's there's a lot more people there. So we do what we can to make sure that our home is accessible and available for people who need it. Psalm 68, 6 says that God sets the solitary in homes. He sets the lonely in families. So we've seen this play out. We're, we're a family and we have a home. So we can be that place where God can set people. So your home, whether it's a tiny little apartment or 5,000 square feet of space, it's a tool to use in God's kingdom. And then we've hosted these meals and seen a very broad spectrum of people. We've had them, these meals in like the rundown part of the city where people are scared to go, but we still have the meal there and they come. And we've done it in like the really nice part of town. We've done it in a 700 square foot apartment where we lived when we first got married and now in our farmhouse outside of the city. But Acts 2.42 to 49 describes the early church's regular practices and one of the things they did regularly was day by day breaking bread in their homes. I'm going to read that for you. I'll pull it up. So give me a second here. I usually put them in my text but I didn't for this one. Acts 2.42-49 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so really we see in that passage a model for just daily, ordinary, faithful practices together. So why does this matter so much? Why the home? That term hospitality can have like all this baggage with it or this like southern outdated charm that we think, okay, how am I supposed to do this? Um, and it's something that we're told to practice. It's not even something we're supposed to master. This is something that we're figuring out. You try it out, it's clunky and it gets awkward. And if you think of it, Jesus shared meals regularly with people. The Bible starts with telling us that Adam and Eve were told what they can eat. So the Bible starts with a meal, but then the last act of Jesus with his disciples was a meal, and then the Bible ends with a wedding feast. So clearly we're called to share meals together as part of our lives. But why is it hard? It's really hard for us. And I think for starters, because we confuse hospitality with entertainment. And Jen Wilkin talks about this, and I'm gonna quote her. She said, entertaining is always thinking about the next course, Hospitality burns the rolls because it was listening to a story. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong. Hospitality savors what was shared. Entertaining exhausted says, it was nothing, really. Hospitality thinks it was nothing, really. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. So we're not called to practice entertainment. We're not called to seek to show others how impressive we are. But when we're anchored in the gospel and our identity isn't in as much about how much we can impress people with our homes or if our farm table is trendy enough or if we have like matching plates, then we can start move, moving into hospitality. Because hospitality seeks. Hospitality looks outward. It's not looking to show off itself. It's seeking to show hospitality to others. So it also means that hospitality doesn't seek a certain type of guest but welcomes the guest who comes to the door. One thing that we've noticed throughout the years is that the people who are on the margins tend to be the ones who need hospitality the most. Um, we've lost friends or just friends who've stopped hanging out with us because we invite a certain person and not because this certain person is like a bad person, just because they think they're annoying and they don't wanna have to share a meal with them. Um, they're just socially awkward usually. They, they make weird jokes or they don't know when to stop talking or they just do those things that you're like, did anyone ever teach you social etiquette? Well, probably not. <laughs> um, but we invite them because they need a home. They need a place too. Um, and knowing that our home is there to serve people, not just who we want to serve, but to seek to show hospitality to others, it makes that question and answer really easy when we say, should we invite so-and-so? The answer is always yes, we should invite so-and-so. So, if you lived near us, you would all be on the list too. Like, it's just a no-brainer. But then when people show up, I have to make an effort to make sure I'm not trying to just be impressive myself. So I try not to look in the mirror before people show up. Like, as silly as that might sound, I just, if I'm not wearing makeup, okay, like, so be it. If I've covered myself with flour and I'm still in my apron and my hair's in a messy bun, like, okay, that's it. I don't scramble to do all the dishes in the kitchen sink. Um, I don't go around and scrub all the toilets. I tell people, like, make yourself at home. There's that joke of, like, sorry for the mess. We live here. I don't know if you heard that. Like, that's, that's the motto of our home. Like, you're coming in. We're here to give you a home, not a museum. 
Um, and because my home is for us, it means it's for the kingdom. So it's a tool for the kingdom, and it's not something that I can use to try to show off for other people. And there's conversations that we're able to have when we open up our home in the comfort of our home, in the safety of our home. We're able to have conversations over dinner or coffee or dessert, whatever, that we can't do on a Sunday afternoon after church when I'm like running and grabbing my kids and they're going here and I'm going this way and they want to talk about this question. They're, I don't have the time or I don't have the mental margin to say, I need to give this some thought. I don't know how to respond to you right now. But when they're sitting at my table and my kids are tucked in bed, I can listen, I can engage, and I can ask questions. One thing we see with the way that Jesus interacted with people was that he wasn't just on the fly with them. He engaged with each person that he interacted with. He listened. He would ask questions. My husband jokes that um, he can spend 30 minutes with someone and have like a really nice conversation and just know a little bit about them. But I'm able to spend like five minutes with the same person and he'll come back and they'll be sharing their whole life story and they'll be like, and then my grandfather died and I might he's like, what? How did you do that? Like you, I was gone for a few minutes. I talked to him all night. He never shared any of that with me. And I tell him it's the questions it's because I ask the questions that usually most people don't want to ask, the awkward questions, um, which makes me a really kind of an awkward person to invite to a dinner party because <laughs> I usually ask the questions of saying like, boy, that sounds like that must have been really painful for you. Have you ever dealt with the grief of that? Um, and then what becomes just a casual conversation, a person is actually talking about how they're really feeling. Now, what I find is that nine out of 10 times, people want to answer those questions. And so I think we're scared to ask them because we think, well, nobody wants me to ask that. But in reality, everybody wants to be known, right? We want someone to spend time with us, to know us, actually. So when you ask someone, how are you doing? There's a part of you that goes, when someone says, how are you doing? You go, they don't really want to know. They want to hear, everything's great. Um, but if you have someone ask you, engage with you, how are you doing? How have you processed that? Or who are you going, dealing with that? And you know that they want to hear the answer. It changes the whole conversation. And so... I ask those questions, and the majority of the time, people love talking about themselves, so it, it's a great opportunity to open the door into talking about the gospel. Um, we talk about this with people who don't know the Lord, and how do you even crack open that door of sharing the gospel with people? Start asking questions, because you can quickly go from, my week was all right, I kind of hate my job, to... God has abandoned me in a really short amount of time with a conversation with someone if you're asking and listening to the right questions. So people want to talk. They want to be known. And if you're there to actually fully know them and seek to show them a place of comfort and hospitality, not just for their physical bodies, but for their spiritual body as well, the Lord really uses that. So hospitality isn't about place settings. It's not about a spotless house. It's not about the best cooked meal or really even about how many people show up. Hospitality and offering community sometimes just looks like sitting down, pausing and asking real questions and then like listening for the real answer. It, uh, it looks like being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to go first is one thing we say, being willing to go first in our communities, to share your story first, lower the bar of awkwardness. I have one friend who has a pretty messy story um, and a testimony in some ways, and he will always say, I want to go first because then it gives everyone else permission to go. 
He's like, if I share my junk first, then it, that person goes, oh, oh, I can talk about this then. And then they go, oh, oh, we can do that here? We can, okay, I'm gonna do that too. And it opens up the room for real genuine conversation. And I've shared my story with so many people at this point in life, I've really lost track of who knows my story and who doesn't. Um, but my goal is that, because as soon as I share my story, it takes away the ability for me to be impressive to somebody else and to be shiny and really cool. Um, as soon as they know the junk of my life, then I just become a real person. And then I can point to Christ through everything. And I can talk to them about their stories and point to Christ. So there's no point in me trying to pretend at that point anymore that I have it all together because I've shown them the, you know, there's nothing behind the curtain, so to speak. This is who I really am. So we talk about Jesus a lot in our home. We share our stories a lot. And the goal of hospitality isn't just that everyone has a good time. It's that we provide a place where real conversation is happening, real dialogue real questions about faith of, from people of all ages, from our kids to someone who is just sitting at our table for the first time. But we want people to feel like they're loved and they see the gospel lived out in practice between a husband and wife, between parents and kids, and then they can kind of be a witness to that in our home. And then we really also want our home to be a haven, so a place to be a safe place for our kids first, so that they can come and hang their tired and weary heads and rest, a place where they can fail and struggle, and then we'll protect them through those years and kind of let them thrash about in this safe haven of a home where they can ask all of the hard questions, but also a place where other people who need a place to struggle can come and do that with us, which means um, we have coffee and tea on hand. I usually have some kind of baked good hanging around that I can pull out from somewhere, or I've been known to like bake something really fast to just get something on the table, because people tend to talk a whole lot more when their stomach is full of good things, <laughs> and uh, it means being willing to put off my plans and what I was hoping to do with that day for somebody else's tears. It means putting off vacuuming, putting off doing the dishes, because there's someone on my couch who needs my attention. So hospitality is not convenient. Hospitality isn't a picture-perfect thing that we see on television. It has to be all right. Hospitality actually flips our lives upside down, but it's for the kingdom of God. So our lives, our schedules, and our homes become a tool for the kingdom. And hospitality isn't like an inoculation against loneliness. So there's been plenty of dinners that we've had where we've had so many people in our house, 40 people mingling around in our kitchen and living room, and everyone leaves, and I feel incredibly lonely. Not because they're gone, but because I feel like, boy, I don't think I sat down with a friend tonight. I think I just poured out all night long. But I think it's because community was really never meant to fill that hole, like I was talking about yesterday. That's when I need to go back to Christ and remember, I'm not doing this so that I feel filled by you. I'm doing this because I'm already filled, and I'm coming here to pour out from what I already have. That's the part of me that wants to be home with the king, wants to be settled and never exhausted by the weight of the world. Hospitality will be exhausting. And there are days that I do say no. There are days that I lock myself down with my crew and we guard our home in family time. So I'm not saying that you can't do that, that you shouldn't do that. There's times where you need to protect home. You don't need to be a doormat for humanity. Boundaries are good. Jesus needed naps 
he needed alone time, and so do I. So it's a good thing to do those. But it does mean that your home and your kitchen and your crock pot are now sacred tools of worship. So you get to serve your church and your neighborhood through cinnamon rolls, and that's an act of worship. <laughs> Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says, your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex for the tears that spill, which I love. It doesn't have to be anything shiny or amazing impressive. That's all you need. Hospitality creates a place here on earth where that models the kingdom of God, the Zion that is to come. It's a picture of it. It's where we alleviate the burdens of others. We spread a meal for them. We bring together strangers who might not ever be under the same roof. And we practice good stewardship of what we've been given. So all over scripture, we see people of God gathering in homes of all economic levels, all political sides, all nations, and they gather because one thing unites them, and that's Christ. And we do this because Jesus has shown the ultimate hospitality to us. He invites us to his table. He shares his body with us. He makes our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit. He sought us out when we were on the margins, when people wouldn't have wanted to include us. He chose to include us. He placed us in his family. So we're not the cool ones. We're the awkward ones who no one wants to be around except for Jesus. So he sought us out, came to our homes and won our hearts, and now we get to go and do the same for the world around us. Again, in her book, Butterfield says, When our Christian homes are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our bodies, our families, and our world. Okay, so... We're going to take a few minutes of a break, and we're going to spend some time writing on our own and then do a small group time again. Do you want to do, like, would it be weird to do, like, one? We can do one big group. Yeah. Since we're That's a great idea. A little bit. Yep. I want you to give it some thought as far as how you have used hospitality as a tool for the kingdom, and maybe brainstorm some ideas of how, in your world right now, in your life, yeah, you could start showing hospitality through your home, through your relationships for the kingdom of God. Maybe what keeps you from that and what you could be doing, um, what your excuses are and how you can use your home for a tool to seek to show hospitality. And then we'll come back together, maybe share some ideas, talk about that a little bit before we do the final session. lot of us will be talking about marriage but and kids but with this caveat these apply to believers in general so I'm going to be using marriage principles but they aren't just for married people and so I've seen these things worked out between families between roommates between co-workers so when you hear me say marriage you can also insert every other relationship that you have and see how does this apply also to that so um, everyone is our neighbor, and we read last night in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine that we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, um, if you're anything like my daughter, <laughs> there's no strangers, just future friends, and that's <laughs> something that she definitely says, just people she hasn't met yet. So, but most of us have a few rings of people, right? So we have like our super close friends, and then our, our acquaintances, and maybe our neighbors across the street. 
But typically, the people who see the most true version of ourselves are the people who we can't pretend in front of, and that's our family. The people who see us day in and day out, we can't really perform for them. We can't pretend community with them. We have genuine, sometimes bad, community with them. And um, social media is a perfect platform for fake community because we can kind of fake it all and set boundaries. Like, I'll let you in this much, but I have parameters set to how much you'll actually see of me. Um, And it's not always bad to have boundaries, but if that's your main source of true community or if a protected community is your main source of what you think community should be like, then the people who see you up close are the ones who are going to miss out the most. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but in my church, we talk a lot about the one another's in scripture. So we have the myriad of commands for one another's love one another, seek good for one another, bear one another's burdens, be of the same mind with one another, give preference to one another, be hospitable to one another, pray for one another. It goes on and on. Community is really outlined for us in so many different ways in scripture, and it should mark us as believers. It should set us apart from the world, our lives and how we interact with others in this world, it should be noticeable, it should be remarkable. Um, Not necessarily impressive, but it should look different. The way we love the world should be a direct arrow back to Christ. So, how do we do this? Um, All right, after God's union, which was the community that we were created out of, he says, let us make man in our image. He then makes marriage, as the first design of community we have in scripture. So we see Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect harmony, perfect roles that complement and serve one another, no shame, no labels, a unified purpose, and no blame. It's good and beautiful. We talked last night how sin came in and wrecked the beauty of this design. And so now marriage, which was meant to be a perfect, beautiful picture of community on earth, is now fractured. And then God designs a plan, a plan to redeem the picture of a broken marriage. He plans to bring a second Adam, a new Adam, to unite to a wife who is adulterous, rebellious, and prone to wander. And that doesn't sound like a beautiful, better picture of marriage, and yet it absolutely is. And so in the working out of community within our marriages, we model this relationship, Christ and the church. It's an earthly, broken picture of a soon-to-be beautiful reality but we still see the effects of sin and even in our homes, especially in our culture and in marriages today. So while our spouse should be our first practice of true community, they often get the brunt of our pain and our sinful hearts without any of the beauty or the repentance. And so marriage is what God chooses to use as a symbol for Christ and his church, and yet we get transfixed on so many other things that marriage shouldn't be. And then there's our kids, our children, have a front row seat to our shortcomings, our tempers, our sin, and they're watching. They see where we go or where we turn in those moments when we are completely broken, when we are sinners fully on display, they're watching. And really our homes are where our kids learn to practice community. So we get to teach them what does it look like to interact with another believer in community. But instead we, we just compare and we measure our husbands against other people's husbands or our kids against other people's kids and be online or, oh, it must be nice that he brought her flowers. My husband never brings me flowers. It must be nice to be so loved. 
and we keep track of the ways that our spouses aren't lining up or the hurts that we have or uncommunicated desires or maybe communicated desires that weren't met, they fester within us and they, they are hurting us and they set up a trap really for our marriage. We compare our kids to other people's kids or her kids are always well dressed and they always behave and look how kind and nice she is to them and my kids look like they just wandered out of the orphanage and like orphan Annie and I'm just dropping the ball as a parent and so I guess I just need to dress them nicer and then I'll be knocking it out of the park. Like we don't look to true community and to the Lord to know how to operate in these communities at home. So instead of home being a place of genuine community and practicing the one another's, it becomes an incubator for comparison and jealousy. What was a gift for our husband and kids now just become tools for us to become more jealous or to compare or compete with others. So we begin to measure our lives on how clean our bookshelves are, what brands we're all wearing, or how often we have date nights. I have date nights every month. Well, I have them every week, and, and so on. So our design for marriage and family is no longer biblical or scriptural, but it's Pinterestable. It's just, that's all it is. So how do we let God redeem this? How do we fix this? Well, let's start with marriage. No one marries a perfect person. No one marries a perfect match. They marry a sinner. They marry someone who desperately also needs the regenerative work of Christ in their hearts. So, here's my question for you. How different would your home look if you lived out the one another's for your spouse? When we, when, when we interact with our husbands, this isn't just a woman to a man. It's one immortal soul to another immortal soul. And if you're both professing Christians, it's one believer to another believer. So I'm going to list a few of the one another's and we'll look at how they might look in a marriage. Mark 9.50 says, be at peace with one another. Okay, off the bat. How do we be at peace with one another when there are conflicting ideas, bills to pay, schedules to coordinate, and disagreements that pile up? Well, we start here. Christ has made peace for us, which means we don't need everything to make sense here in order to obtain peace. We don't need all the mechanisms to lock in place and everything to be working perfectly to actually have peace. Peace means being willing to go first, to extend peace first. Christ did not wait for us to come to him first to offer peace. He pursued peace with us. He made peace for us while we were still sinners. So we should go and do the same. Which means we give up the right to give our spouse the cold shoulder. We give up the right to kind of just be irritated with them for days at a time until they realize what they did wrong, and then we'll make peace. Christ pursued us to make peace. We should go and do the same for one another. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. When we are caught in sin, I talked about this earlier, scripture says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance that we should restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. So this means when your spouse sins against you, you are not within your rights to hold that over his head or to stew on it for a few days or to withhold intimacy or to bring it up at a later point to make sure he remembers that he sinned against you. Christ does not do that to us. So he never holds a grudge against us. He doesn't seek out our embarrassment or humiliation. We're not the punchline to his joke. We don't come to his throne wondering if Jesus is in a good mood today or a bad mood today. He is kind, 
tenderhearted and forgives us our sin, so we should go and do the same for our spouses. Romans 12.10 says we should outdo one another in showing honor. So how would your marriage change if you sought out ways to outdo him in showing honor? Christ emptied himself of his glory, his rights, and submitted himself to the Father willingly. And we, as women, get to picture that emptying and submission within our own marriages. This isn't blind submission. This isn't just, you know, blinders on whatever he says, like, I'm just going to do it, to, like, to sin at all costs. But this is a call for a woman to look like Christ, empty ourselves of our glory and what we're entitled to, and lay that down for our spouse in the same way that hopefully he is laying down his life like Christ did for his church. So it goes like that. There's a hundred of these in the New Testament, but you see what I'm getting at. If we lived out the one another's, how would that change our marriages? If we didn't wait for our spouse to live out the one another's for us, well, we decided we're going to go ahead and do that for them. So yeah, community isn't just about meals and breaking bread. It's not just about pretty tables or Instagramable moments. It's not even about like your three best friends and coffee. Community is the act of laying down your sword and your shield. I heard Matt Chandler say it this way. We, we heard him last year, and he was talking about transparency and vulnerability, and he said this. Transparency is when you let your shield down. Vulnerability is when you put your sword down, too. And that's what community is. It's taking the risk on people, knowing that they will hurt you, they will let you down, they are going to disappoint you, they might break your heart, but we're going to love anyway. We're going to be honest and vulnerable. We're going to show up forgive, and what better place to practice that than right at home. And so if you're not married, do this. Practice this. Live this out with your friends, other family members. The kind, this is not community that is reserved for marriage only. So I'm using marriage as my main point. Marriage isn't the end goal. Being like Christ is. So live out the one another's where you're called and with the people you're with. And we can practice this with our kids too. I've had many conversations with my daughter that go something like this. Madeline, I need to apologize. I snapped at you earlier, and while I want to blame it on me being tired, um, that's not really a good excuse. I was being selfish with my time, and I snapped at you. That was wrong. I really want God to change my heart so I can be more kind and more laid back. Will you forgive me and pray for me that God continues to change my heart to be more like his? I say that to her a lot, like constantly in my home. I model repentance and confession for my kids, trying to live out community with them through confession, vulnerability, prayer, and honesty. They don't benefit from me being the rock star of our home. They don't benefit from me hiding all of my mistakes and being awesome. They benefit from me saying, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus too. I remember one day my daughter had done something and she was really, really frustrated. And she, it was something we had already talked to her about and she just had done it again and we caught her again and she was frustrated with herself. And verbatim, she said, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? She's like, I don't know how to do the things that I know I should do and I keep doing the things that I'm not supposed to do. How am I ever going to be free of this? And we kind of chuckled. And well, first, like, the answer is not, well, if you just obey, just do what's right, and then like, just do what's right, and you'll be fine. Check that box. That's all you have to do. No, we're like, 
Romans 7. Like, that's literally in Scripture. Paul says the same exact thing. And we struggle with the same thing. I say to her, Madeline, do you, you have no idea how many things in my life I say, why do I keep doing the evil that I'm not supposed to do and I can't do the good that I know I'm supposed to do? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, I understand that frustration. So the answer for me at that point isn't to say, yeah, geez, kiddo, I don't, I don't know, good luck. Like, you better, you better find God. The answer at that point is to say, I know, let's go to Jesus. Let's take that to him. I don't know how to do it either. We need him to rescue us. And I think... I think it's tempting as moms, as wives, to want to be the Holy Spirit for our husband and our kids. And so we see things and we're like, hmm, you know, maybe you should read your Bible some more today. Or maybe you should do this or don't do that. Like we hover in this, like, we think we need to be omnipresent and omniscient in every move that they make. But and there might be times that we're called to address things or talk about things. But that's not our role in their lives. And we can't be their savior. We don't know the inner workings of their heart and mind. But God does. So it's more beneficial for our kids, especially, to go to them and say, you know, I don't know how to help you be free of this. I can give you some ideas, but I actually don't really know. I think that needs to be a work of the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord. We can be those friends to our kids, to our spouses, where they can say to us, you too, I thought I was the only one. We give them the gift of friendship through community. When we shift the gaze of our home and lives away from comparison and toward community, we can disengage from the things that we're not called to do. And we can put it on the people who are directly in front of us. We can disengage from internet competition, comparison, husbands who aren't ours, kids who aren't ours, and put our eyes on the field in front of us, the place we're called to be faithful. I'm teaching on Ruth tomorrow night. And the entire story of Ruth really is a picture of what it looks like to live an ordinary, faithful life. And I tell the women at my church all the time, and I think I sent, you've seen that graphic that I made, it is no small thing to live a faithful life. That's a beautiful, important, and lost piece of our culture. We don't need rock star moms. We don't need trophy wives. We need faithful women doing the work that needs to be done in the field that is in front of them. And it starts at home. It starts at the place where we really let our guard down. <clears throat> in your Christianity, C.S. Lewis talked about how at the end of the day when he's recalling how he sinned, it's usually sins of charity so, or lack thereof, so how he sneered, how he snapped, sulked, snubbed. And he writes how these sins are really revealing of his inner character because they were spurred by some unexpected circumstance, and they're just what happened to come out of him. And he uses the analogy of rats in a cellar. So if you have rats in the cellar, and you go to find them by turning on the light and banging on the door, well, by the time you go down to the cellar, they're going to be gone. You're not going to see any of the rats. But if you suddenly go in the basement, no warning, swing open the door, you'll likely see the rats. The suddenness doesn't create the rats. They were already there. It just reveals them. So and that's what happens when the stuff inside of us gets jostled suddenly, and suddenly splashes out. Usually it's not great. Like, I don't know about you guys, but usually when I'm suddenly caught off guard by an interruption or a child or a spouse or something I didn't want, what splashes out isn't usually kindness and joy and patience. It's the ugly stuff. Home is where we see this. Home is where we have to repent of it. It's where we have to apologize and mend and forgive 
and overlook and extend grace for when it splashes out of our spouse, when it splashes out of our kids, or our roommates, our coworkers. Let the people at home see the rats in our basement, which is not a great feeling. <laughs> so the goal of Christian community isn't just good friends on a Sunday night for football. It's for people to be able to help us kill the rats and to love us through it. And it points us back to Jesus, the source of our truest friendship, our truest companion, the one who saw the plague of rats swarming in your heart and said, that one, I want her. So we cannot love our family with all of our hearts or our minds or our souls if we're not first going to our Father and then learning how to love them in our home. So we're going to spend some time journaling before we wrap up. We'll journal again and have some small time, small time, small talk. I knew what I meant. Um, my brain's officially run out of words for the um, But I want you to spend some time journaling about how you can love and serve and practice one another's with people in your family, how, that, how you can do that well. Because that's something you could leave this place today and go do immediately. How can you practice the one another's with the people immediately in your life? And then I want you to think about what splashes out when you're jostled unexpectedly, what rats are in your basement, and how can you help? How can you start killing those rats? How can you let the people in your lives help you kill those rats and point you and your family back to Christ? We'll spend just a few minutes talking about that, and then we can do a small group talk. <coughs>